welcome to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Meyerly. And uh, so what do you think we're talking about today there, Cam? Well, I figured it was probably about time we bust out the parasite stuff. That seems like kind of a softball type topic, but uh, certainly this time of year, we're getting into early summer. And for our locations, uh, it's something we're going to be dealing with here sooner rather than later. Uh, so. I guess to start, you know, how how much parasite issue have you run into here in the past? Um, just kind of talk about what what we've encountered on our personal flocks and then uh, get into some of the nitty gritty on on parasite species. Well, I guess we've been pretty lucky with uh, intensive grazing and, you know, moving sheep every day. We're just trying to keep sheep out of that worm zone. You know, they they. There's research, I guess, that says that, that that parasite tends to only move up about four inches in that forage. Um, that's pretty much, in my understanding, that parasite only moves in water. And uh, just as that water moves. And so if you can keep from grazing below that four inches, you don't have much of an issue. And, um, you know, every once in a while we'll have a ewe that will pop up, but it's not an overall flock kind of an an issue now we do with those lambs we'll put them in a spot and have them really overgraze and uh, we'll come back into that 25 30 days later and have them overgraze that again to give them that faction so that we can pull those fecal samples and see who's parasite resistant who's not but uh that's been the the biggest thing if, if you can just keep moving sheep the more you can move them, the less issues you have with that, with the, uh, with the parasites. But you can always run in, you can always run into a problem with them. I know last year we had uh, oh, about five weeks of no rain. And then we got a really nice rain. And my first thought was my whole farm is one big giant infected zone now. Because, <laughs> you know, all those right. eggs are hatching and <laughs> It's like, man, we might have a big problem, but we didn't. You know, we were able to keep keep moving sheep and uh, keep that forage, that residual height high enough that they weren't in that zone all the time. Yeah, and I would definitely say that you're probably an outlier. I mean, I would consider you know the sheep there at, at our home farm an out an outlier flock as well. Um, certainly, from a even a national perspective here in the U.S. or I guess global concern around the world, you know, parasites are a huge factor in our sheep and goat or small ruminant species, uh, you know, again, around the world. And so I pulled up some USDA just survey data from 2019 to, to kind of give us a, a base of where we're coming from or why we, why we're even going to talk about parasites, why it's an issue and kind of what producers are seeing and in, in reporting. Uh, there's kind of two primary categories of death loss, and that's categorized as predator death loss. Uh, so coyotes, predominantly where we're located at, uh, bears, domestic dogs. Sasquatches. Uh, what was that? Sasquatches. Yeah, <laughs> right. And yeah, especially where you're at. I yeah, would we're stick with them here. <laughs> right, right. Not reported on the, the USDA statistic, but... That's probably a conspiracy in and of itself. 
Um, and when we're looking at like non-predator death loss, you know, items that are at the top of um, kind of the category for sheep or old age, internal parasites being second on the list and then lambing problems. And in our mature ewe flock, that kind of makes sense. Um, you know, there's sheep that are, are aged out or uh, ones that maybe we have a, we're not able to determine death loss. Uh, we can kind of count them out because of that old age, hopefully, if, we, if we're keeping records. Uh, lambing problems, it's a, a stressor event where we can see some issues arise, but uh, internal parasites are, are an issue that don't necessarily come at one point or we can't necessarily predict for. Uh, and certainly when we're looking at lamb losses, uh, a similar kind of statistic there on coyotes, dogs, bears. Um, I thought it was kind of interesting. Instead of bears on that, that predator death loss on the lamb category, mountain lions were actually on there instead. Um, again, we're, we, we can complain about coyotes and predator death loss, and that's a discussion for a different day, but I am glad we don't deal with mountain lions where, where we're at. I'd yeah. probably be out of the sheep business. Um, but when we look on the lamb side of things, weather related causes, so early life, um, you know, hypothermia, issues like that, and then uh, internal parasites are, are on that list again. And so, you know, it's something that's generating a, a massive amount of effic- of economic loss to the industry and, and they're on, on farm. Um, and really, when we think about if we hone in on just what parasite, we could talk about every single one and we don't have the time to do that. And not that we only have one that's an issue, but kind of enemy number one or the one that is doing the greatest amount of damage uh, would be Hamacus contortus or the barber pole worm. And if we if we treat this like a an extension event, uh, yeah, I, I'd ask you, Tom, you know, why why do they call it the barber pole worm? Why is that the common name? Because it's it's red and white striped. Just exactly. like a barber pole. Yep, just like a barber pole. And then the next question I ask, because usually people can get can get that question, is what's causing that that oscillating red and white color pattern? Is that the blood? Yep. It? Yep. They're blood, they're a blood feeding parasite. Um uh, and so that's blood. Do you have a guess what the white portion would be? Nope. Okay. So reproductive tract. So we've got a intertwining digestive tract and reproductive tract, meaning we're only going to see that in um, our our adult uh, larvae that are feeding. Um, and so at that infective L3 stage, and we'll talk a little bit about life cycle. Again, we're going to keep it pretty surface level and um, and probably skim over a lot and dive dive in deeper later on. Um, and then the other question, you know, probably my favorite question to ask in an extension event is, you know, we talk about worms, um, parasites, and they're not necessarily worms, but, you know, what is a worm? Like for you, what's what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, probably before I got sheep, I was thinking of earthworms. Right. Yeah, earthworms, um, you know, in, in an agronomy setting, maybe armyworms. Um, and then my other question is, even on those species, you know, we tend to think pretty highly of ourselves, but are they smart? 
I would say no. Yeah. I mean, your gut kind of response, your gut reaction is no. Like what? It's it's kind of a silly question to ask. And uh, once you start kind of investigating and learning about kind of what they do, how they adapt, especially with Hamakis, um, you know, I, again, we're we're dealing with an enemy that um, is probably more intelligent than what we give it credit for. And, and we could argue um, compared to a lot of producers probably has a leg up on on its you know, intellect. Um, but yeah, if we're looking at Hamacus contortus, uh, we jump into the life cycle. It's a gastrointestinal nematode. Um, it's got a direct life cycle. So fairly simple. Um, it means it does not need an intermediate host. So if it's coming out of a sheep, it can go right back into a sheep after it uh, Oh, molts in the environment and develops in that environment. So when your sheep are infected, and I guess here's another, we'll just do some like random trivia questions for you, Tom, because you're you're a good audience this morning. Uh, you know, if I buy sheep and I haven't had sheep on this farm for 20 years, and I buy a sheep and I deworm everybody and I take a fecal egg count and everybody's clean, and I put them out there and all of a sudden I have a parasite issue. How does that make any sense, and where is it coming from? It could come from white-tailed deer. Exactly. And can you keep those off of your farm there in Pennsylvania? No. I put signs up and everything, but they just trust me. <laughs> and they don't listen. Exactly. And so, you know, we've got some other issues. It's not just carried by sheep. Um, you know, it's carried by goats. It's carried by deer uh, and species like that. So even in our most intensive forms of management, um, and we feel like we're doing everything right. I, it shows up, you know, it has a way, a way of kind of outlasting expectation and um, just exceeding its ability to, to thrive and to infect sheep. Um, so when it's in the environment, the stage of life where it is infective, meaning when sheep consume it, when goats consume it, it gets in, develops, does its job, is that L3, the L3 infective stage of larvae. And you, know, you touched on, it moves in water. It cannot move uh, outside of that liquid. And so again, that's, you know, if we could do a whole episode on just myth busting. Um, I know, I don't, it wasn't one of my meetings, but, um, you know, a couple of goat producers had asked, well, if we if we go out and we burn the edges of the field, can we prevent, you know, Hamacus contortus from, I guess, migrating from one paddock to the next paddock? And I think because it's so widespread, it feels like it's just almost chasing the sheep around. because yeah. We can't get away from it a lot of times. And so I don't know exactly. I'm sure that someone's done the project to say from that fecal pad it will move or has the potential to move, you know, X feet away from where it was deposited on the ground. Um, and that movement is not done mechanically on its own. So, you know, they're on that blade of grass. Uh, they can move through water. So rain, dew, um, there's some kind of, 
the jury's out. I, sh- I shouldn't say the jury's out. There's some conflicting arguments on whether, you know, evapotranspiration, meaning when that dew gets pulled up, if it's in the morning time, when the sun comes out and we're talking about burning the dew off, um, when the dew droplet gets pulled up, is that parasite hitching a ride? Um, there are some parasitologists that'll tell you yes. There are others that will say, well, it's not really hitching a ride. You know, it's that dew spreading out. And then um, they have a non-directional movement, the parasite does. So they don't really know where they're going, uh, per se. It's just a, a head tail flap. So our other, you know, worm species that we might commonly think about um, kind of a scrunching motion. I don't know that if we have any entomologists that listen to this, they'll probably get upset because um, I don't know the terms for how worms move. But yeah. um, it literally is just a head thrash, head tail thrash back and forth uh, to get to where they're going. And so when you look at them under a microscope, the way that you know, yet these are viable infective larvae is when you see movement of this thrashing. Um, they're just wiggling. They're just wiggling. And yeah. the only way they can wiggle is in water. Yep. Um, and so, you know, they're in that that short portion of the grass. So they're not, I tell people, they're not moving, you know, 12, 18 inches. So someone like you who's doing a, a high graze or a, um, I don't know what the technical term, if you'd like to input your technical term of, what it would be when you have a lot of forage out there um you know, you're probably going in now you're probably going into a lot of stuff that's 20 30 inches tall um yeah you know we're not seeing that parasite in that upper portion of the canopy uh specifically barber pole worm and the problem is i can't tell my sheep to not graze nope. lower than four inches nope. so the if we think of it as uh, just offering or providing the opportunity to consume a higher percentage of forage above four inches. So if you think of it, if I put them into a paddock that has five inches of average height forage, uh-huh. and I put them into a paddock that has 25 inches of forage available, the percentage of forage under four inches that they're consuming is going to be greater in that five inch paddock than in the 25 inch paddock. Yep. Just because of availability. Um, And so it's, again, I can't train the sheep to not, or tell them and ask them nicely to not consume, uh, you know, that, that new growth that's down below uh, or that forage clear down to the ground, but I can do my best at limiting their consumption below that, that threshold, especially by our frequent movements. Um, yeah. You know, even if we're you're not minimizing, moving, you're minimizing the risk by putting them into that taller forage. Correct. Correct. And so we'll get kind of here on timeline, why you had mentioned your, your daily moves are helping. So when we're thinking about, um, I guess we've covered consumption. So oh. the sheep is consuming that larvae off of the forage. Um, once it is ingested, we have, you know, around 21 days on average to the time in which it is reproductively mature, producing eggs in the animal. So three weeks from consumption to spreading eggs, 
out in the feces of that animal. Mm. Uh, and so in those adults, the um, kind of the the reason they're so effective is just their reproductive performance inside the animal. So adult females on average are laying 1,300 eggs per day. You obviously have more than than one single adult female worm in there. Yeah. Um, and there have been reports as, as many as 5,000 eggs per day. Um, so that's a, a characterization or character characterization uh, we call fecundity. Uh, so their out the reproductive output is increased. Um, and so three weeks, we're moving from consumption, three weeks, we're laying eggs, it's deposited in the fecal material. Um, and I, I guess, again, skipped over another portion here. Once they're consumed and they make their way to the abomasum, which, well, here, here's another quiz for you. Uh, four compartments of the ruminant stomach. Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Yes. The abomasum <laughs> and the rumen are the only two that I pay any attention to. Yeah, and I'd argue those are the two most important. I mean, that those are the two that we talk about all the time. Yeah. So we've got the abomasum, uh, the omasum, the rumen, and the reticulum. Yeah. And that's not in any in any order. But, um, you know, we move from from the rumen. Um, you know, that's that parasite goes through all four compartments. It makes its way. It doesn't make its way, but it hitches a ride on that feed stuff um, to the abomasum. Knows that that's where it needs to be to live and feed and thrive. And uh, that's where it sets up shop. So that's its kind of final stop on the bus of the um, transportation system. So in that three weeks, how soon does it start feeding On, on blood? So, as an adult later on, um, what happens is we go from an L3, it will molt into an L4, and those those juveniles, if you will, that kind of teenage stage, can be can begin feeding very quickly. Uh-huh. And so, when we talk about, uh, we're going to sidetrack here, uh, acute hemicosis, we're talking about uh, animals that have a heavy infection load. Maybe we pull a fecal egg count and we don't see any any eggs present. Um, and so at that point you're those, already seeing bottle jaw. Correct. Okay. Yep. So they will it's a um, oh, just a boom of these molting larvae, these larvae that are are trying to get to a reproductively mature state, and it's an overwhelming amount of feeding behavior. And so they're consuming um, quite a bit of of red blood, and and we can see some some low famot or some high, I guess higher on the scale, uh, more pale famotia scores, and bottle jaw as you're as you mentioned before we even see a fecal egg count. Um, and that bottle jaw is that uh, lack of red blood cells. And it's accumulating, that liquid then is accumulating under that jaw. Correct. Okay. No, that's exactly, that's exactly right. So we're living and feeding in the true stomach. 
the abomasum. So that would be our our portion of the digestive tract in those sheep uh, that's responsible for a lot of our chemical digestion. It would be the organ that is most similar to our stomach. In uh, the way that they're consuming uh, that blood, you know, a lot of times we'll call them um, like a almost like a vampire type uh, species. And, and I think that confuses a lot of people in thinking that we have this blood sucking behavior because if any of us are going to, we won't get into that. But if, in our brain, the first thing that, that it goes to is, well, it's got to latch on because it's, you know, it's in this system and it's sucking blood out. And actually all it's doing is creating tissue abrasion with its mouthpiece and lapping that blood up. Um, it's poking little holes in poking little holes and at this and point if we were to cut down. that yeah if we were to cut that animal open um we were post that animal and look in the abomasum they're visible to the naked eye mm-hmm. so um maybe roughly uh an inch and that would be a, a larger one maybe three quarters of an inch half an inch three quarters of an inch um but we could see with the naked eye see that red and white pattern parasite in the abomasum um and so poking holes, lapping that blood, secreting um, cow reticulin, uh, which is an anti-clotting mechanism. So, you know, we look at this, this tiny little parasite and we say, well, how can you consume enough blood that, that you drain a sheep um, of its you know, red blood cells that it can't you know, reproduce that red blood cell fast enough to recover? Uh, and so it's it's partly from consumption, but it's mostly the feeding behavior. So it's not only what it's consuming, but what's spilling out into uh, the abomasum. And so a lot of times, and it's also quantity of of you know worm load inside that gut. Uh, but a lot of times, again, if we were to post that animal or or cut that abomasum open. Uh, you know, we're going to see some some free floating uh, blood in that system, that kind of dark brown coloration in that system, just because of that feeding behavior and, and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is they're constantly moving. So because they don't latch on and just suck blood, um, they have to always be moving in that system, um, which is why a lot of our dewormers work as a a paralytic uh, meaning we kind of freeze that worm and um, you know paralyze that worm and and then the gut the normal gut function flushes that individual out of the system because they can't um, swim anymore they can't wiggle correct yeah they can't stay where they need to need to stay yeah. um, and so yeah that's that's just fun little facts to to know about that um and when we're thinking about blood consumption kind of that l4 to adult stage are consuming one to two quote-unquote drops of blood um again doesn't sound like a lot but when you have a couple thousand in there uh it adds up yeah it's it's like that death by a thousand cuts it it, literally yeah, yeah that's the best the best description of it um 
And then we can see acute anemia as early as 10 to 12 days post-infection, to your yeah. point that you asked asked earlier. And then those heavy infections result in death because we don't have um, you know, the red the red blood cell uh, capacity to, to sustain life. We die of, um, we don't, but the sheep die of anemia. So I guess we've covered the feeding behavior there and I skipped over that, but we go 21 days ingestion to reproduction, feeding occurs in between there in the abomasum. And then once we pass, um, start passing those eggs in the feces, we're looking at seven to 14 days in the environment from the egg, from that larval egg to the infective L3 mm -hmm. stage. Um, you say, well, is it seven or is it 14? And what we need to kind of think about is the environment in which Hamacus contortus thrives is that warm, humid environment. So when it's warm and it's humid, and the reason I had mentioned, you know, here, you know, we're getting ready to, to, uh, you know, deal with these guys in in kind of our region, is we're getting hot finally. You know, it's kind of starting to feel like summer. Um, now we don't have much moisture to contribute to that humidity aspect, but um, that warm and wet environment. We're looking at seven days. Um, if I were to just, you know, take an infected animal, um, extract some fecal material, and culture it on a on a countertop. Um, when I say culture it, I mean put it in a cup and and let it sit, and I keep it moist. Um, say the the average temperature in my house is seventy five, and that number isn't important. Just know that it's not hot and uh, extraordinarily humid. About fourteen days is what I can get um, consistently for that egg to move to that infective L3 stage. And um, it's two weeks. So if we stick closer to that seven day interval out in the environment in the summertime, uh, you know, we're talking 28 days, we're talking four weeks. Yep. And you know, the reason that matters is when we're thinking, you know, like a good, a good alfalfa rotation or um, when we're talking about rotating for optimal nutrition content in our forages, we're falling right in line with, with a lot of these parasite life cycles, which can be problematic. Yep. Um, so, you know, if I run into a field and say I'm moving every five days and I've got four paddocks or maybe I, you know, I, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. I've got six paddocks. So I run in for five days, uh, we graze it, and then move on to the next one, every every paddock. And then I come back to paddock one, um, you know, in, in either day 30 or, or maybe we can extend that grazing time. Maybe we're doing it every seven days because I have time on Saturday. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going six weeks then total till when I'm back on that paddock number one. And I've got uh, eggs in the, in the manure that I've laid down in paddock one, and then I'm coming back consuming it. And all we're doing is cycling that parasite through those sheep over and over and over again. Yep. Um, and it's not necessarily a cycle out. We're just compounding 
the infection. Yep. Um, and so that's where all of a sudden it's like, well, I got to deworm these things all the time um, because we're just adding, adding worms and new worms. And, uh, you know, it's something that they can build up pretty quickly. And on top of it, you know, like, again, if we're going to fly back to the extension portion of the talk, um, you know, the next slide would say, well, that's okay. Cause we've got treatment options in the form of dewormers that we can pick up still over the counter um, at any of our, our farm stores. Um, and the problem is we're lacking efficacy in our dewormer um, categories. So it's kind of a double-edged sword here where we, and, and both edges are, are negative. Um, so, so it's something we're dealing with this parasite infection and we're getting to a point on a lot of farms where we can't even go and treat with a chemical dewormer. Um, you know, our, our normal class of medicine to fix the problem, uh, to get them back to a kind of a state of a normal, um, because they've built up so, those worms have built up a resistance to those worms. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the point we get in or the part we get into, um, when we're thinking about dewormer resistance, you know, we talk about um, parasite resistance, and then we also need to talk about parasite resistance to dewormers or anthelmintic resistance. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, when we look at kind of how that occurs, just a crude example of it. Um, and again, this was all veterinary advice back in the 90s. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, uh, you need to go out every, you know, once a month, hit them with the dewormer and, you know, in, in their defense, if we're always clearing out the parasite, we, if we kill off the parasite every single time and those animals are clean going on to that next pasture in four weeks, we can probably hit them again and we're not losing any animals because, they don't have any parasites. Yeah. Uh, the issue is, you know, probably on the, it wasn't good advice to begin with. When we look at the producer side of things, um, you know, how many of us are, are deworming right after we pull those sheep off of a scale? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's already a, a labor intensive process. Yep. And, you know, do we, do we want to add another, management step to it probably not yeah um and so you know if everything especially you know if we're trying to to save a buck um when we go out and we say well everybody's 150 pounds and so we give a dose of for a 150 pound animal to the whole flock but then we've got you know some that are are bigger some that are smaller and the smaller ones probably not a huge issue until we talk about some of our dewormers that are a little more sensitive to, to body weight. Um, but we're giving that lower dose to those large animals and it's not as effective. Or, um, you know, are you a, a guaranteed shot with that drench gun that you get every ounce of, yeah. of material down their throat? Yeah. I mean, you hope you are. It doesn't happen all the time. Yeah, most of them cooperate, but you know, you put it in, and then all of a sudden they cough or they yeah. just they're fighting you, and half of it ends up on the the side of the chute. 
Yeah. And so, you know, maybe we're going back and and treating that animal again to make sure she gets a full dose. Um, but that dose can be expensive. And so if it's if I'm not paying attention and I'm just running them through and maybe I miss that, um, that individual again, that's contributing to anthelmintic resistance. So uh, essentially we're killing off a portion of the larvae that have then seen a small dose of that anthelmintic. And um, I should say when I'm talking anthelmintics can be used, um, I'm just talking about dewormers. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're developing a generation of parasites that has seen the dewormer, the ones that have seen it and live, survive. And then they breed on and yep. produce generations that can see that dewormer and live. And all of a sudden I go to give this dewormer that I'm using and I don't kill anything. And so I feel like I'm doing something that's beneficial. And in, in reality, I'm just flushing my money down the drain. Because um, those all, all those eggs that are coming out, those are going to hatch and they're going to be resistant. Correct. Correct. And that becomes an issue. Yeah, so up, we are running up on our time here, Cam. Yeah, I know. So kind of wrap things up here a minute, and uh, we're definitely going to have more discussions on this because there's a whole lot more to cover on it. Yeah, yeah, and I hope that just kind of covers the the basics to start. Uh, certainly, we'll talk about other parasite species. Um, we'll get in, into more on how maybe we're we're coping with Hamacus contortus on both of our operations, as well as maybe some alternatives that that we can look at uh, that don't create anthelmintic resistance. But uh, it's a big issue for a lot of producers and something that I feel that if we understand life cycle, how to treat for it and how to manage that parasite on our farms uh, certainly contributes to the sustainability of the sheep industry in the U.S. That's the truth. Well, we thank you for listening to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do that by contacting me at bigtomperkins at gmail.com. So it's been good catching up with you, Cam. You too, Tom. Keep an eye on your uh, residual heights there and your grazing. <laughs> Keep those animals out of that parasite zone. So, all right. Well, we'll talk to you later then. All right. All right. Bye.